What's your name? What's my name? <laughs> my name is David Keith Stewart. How many years did you pitch in the major leagues? I uh, was in the big leagues for parts of 16 seasons. How many World Series did you win? Won three, three championships uh, with three different teams, uh, the Dodgers, the A's, and the Blue Jays. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, my guest is one of my all-time favorites from my childhood. Dave Stewart was the undisputed ace of the Oakland A's pitching staff in the 1980s. Since his career ended, he's been a pitching coach, an assistant GM. He was an agent, a GM, a TV analyst, working to maybe bring baseball ownership to Nashville. He's led an extraordinary life, and Dave Stewart is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Stu. Welcome back to Albuquerque. You're here for the Albuquerque Professional Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. It's great to have you here. It's good to be here. Um, it's been a very, very long time since I've had uh, the opportunity and chance to spend time here in Albuquerque, so I'm, I'm really excited about being here. All right, so as an Oakland A's fan who went to a lot of games, I mostly just want to talk about the glory days, right, in Oakland. Um, but I want to start with this. I'm looking at my notes here. May 8th, 1986, you get released by the Phillies. It was about two weeks later you get signed by the A's. At that point in your career, you've been traded twice, you've been released. Statistically, it's not going as well as you would like. How were you still just as confident in your ability to pitch in the big leagues? Were you wondering if this was it? Or how were you feeling in that time there? Well, at that time, um, if I'm being truthful, I didn't care. <laughs> um, and I had great years. You know, Some of the the, the things that are very, very misunderstood about my career early is um, all the years that I played with the Dodgers were, were great years. Um, my rookie year was a great year for a rookie. Um, I played with Fernando Valenzuela, and so, um, but I ended up getting an opportunity to close baseball games that year, and a year when they needed me to close games, I closed games. Um, in 1982, um, I was a swing man starter slash reliever and did the best job that I could um, as, a, as a swing guy. And statistically, once again, I had a very good season. And then the, the year I was traded uh, to Texas, um, that was a 10-4 and four season, I believe, um, pitching both out of the bullpen as, as a starter again. Um, and then, you know, the, the roof caved in in Texas um, where I just didn't get an opportunity to really do what I felt I was best suited to do, which is start. Um, uh, they, I got opportunities to start, um, and then I had uh, situations where I pit, pitched out of the pen, but the confidence uh, from the organization uh, was not there um, in regards to me having that opportunity. And so 
um, things went bad. Plus, there were 200 lost seasons in Texas, so I don't think anybody is statistically going to be very good uh, when it comes to the Texas Rangers. And then when I got to Philadelphia, obviously, um, August of of 85, I was traded there, and then April or May of 86, I was released. So there wasn't any opportunity there. And so when I was released and, uh, you know, sitting and and contemplating what my next move was, um, if you talk to my agent at that time, Tony Atanasio, he would tell you that my comments were just what I told you. Mm -hmm. I don't really care. You know, (laughs) I I can continue to play at this time. Um, or, you know, I can go back home and go to school and finish school and, you know, do what everybody does, you know, find a, a good occupation um, to carry through the rest of my life. So you end up signing with the hometown A's. And to my mind, it all started for the A's at Fenway. Monday Night Baseball, national TV. Tony La Russa's first game as manager. You're going against Clemens, Canseco homers. You get the W. To me, that started it that night. Um, what do you remember about facing? Clemens was the all-star game starter. He was the Cy Young that year. What do you remember about going into that? Okay, you'd been with the A's for a few weeks, but here we go, national TV. Um, actually, I'd been with the A's for more than a few weeks. <laughs> um, I, came to, I came to them, uh, as you said, in, in, oh, that's right, uh, in May. In May. Um, and, you know, I endured, once again, uh, a really, really rough period of time with uh, Jackie Moore and West Stock. I uh, spent a lot of time sitting versus getting an opportunity to pitch. And, um, you know, thank goodness for a close friend, Dusty Baker, um, because I talked to Dusty you know, on many occasions about just walking away from it, even at that point, because it was obvious, you know, West didn't, uh, West and Jackie weren't really giving me an opportunity to to pitch much for them and and uh and I had no reason no idea why um and you know good words from Dusty is hey man just sit it out and see what happens and then and then all of a sudden uh we we got a new manager and we got a new pitching coach and that was the change for me um at that time that uh uh Dave Duncan and, and Tony La Russa took over and so you know when Tony called we were in Milwaukee at the time. He hadn't taken over the team yet. He had been announced, but wasn't his first official game was going to be in Boston. He called. I was in Milwaukee. He let me know that um, I was going to be pitching in Boston his first game. Um, he also let me know that it was a Monday night game, a uh, nationally televised game. And he also um, let me know that Roger Clemens was going to be the guy on the other side. And my response to him through all of that is, okay, just – you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was. You know, I got the opportunity uh, to pitch that game. I pitched deep in that game. Um, you know, and quite frankly, for how I was being pitched before, I wasn't going to make any excuses for myself, but um, it wasn't like I had taken the mound a lot. I think up to that point I only had one start. I mean, it was against the Yankees. And... Um, not very many outings out of the bullpen. And so, uh, you know, my thought was I was just going to go as hard as I could for as long as I could, and hopefully uh, when uh, I left the game, the team had an opportunity to win. 
So I remember as a kid hearing that Dave Duncan taught you the forkball, but then I read something recently about how you had the forkball and other teams didn't allow you to throw it. Right. Explain to me kind of how you learned that pitch and why they didn't allow you, and then the ace saying, go ahead, use that pitch. Well, I had it. Uh, I, I My 82 season with the Dodgers, um, Sandy Koufax was actually trying to teach me uh, a sinker, a two-seamer. If you know Sandy and you've ever shaken hands with Sandy, Sandy's hands will probably end up at your your elbow in a handshake. And so when he was showing me the two-seamer, it looked seriously to me like a split finger at that time that um, uh, I turned even more into a, a fork as the season went on. My fingers started to split a little bit, a little bit more. And um, the results were immediate for me in what he was trying to do, which he was trying to turn my season around. It's crazy. Um, you know, I had a mid-four ERA at that time, which mid-four in this day and time is acceptable. <laughs> but in that time, mid-four is, is an opportunity to go back to the minor leagues at that time. And so I was talking to Sandy, and I was telling him, you know, I, I need something to – to help me get through the second half of the season. And that's when he showed me. And uh, it literally turned my season around. Um, I ended up having a good second half. Um, I think I finished the year with a 3-8, both spot starting and relieving. And um, that was the beginning of uh, the the fork ball for me. So did the the Phillies and Rangers not want you to throw that pitch? When I got to Texas, uh, uh, Doug Rader was the manager uh, there and – you know, in spring training, you're supposed to work on all of your stuff to get ready for a season. And I'd given up a couple of home runs on the, on the fork, and he didn't like the pitch, told me to put it in my back pocket and don't use it while he was managing. Then I brought it back out with Bobby Valentine. But, uh, you know, my use was so sporadic at that time, I never really got a chance to, to master the pitch again. And then in Philadelphia, I was there and then gone. And so when uh, Dunk took over the team, um, I immediately in that first start broke the pitch back out. And um, that pitch got me into the – got me uh, seven full innings. Um, Dunk asked me what the pitch was um, after the start. I told him, and he told me it was a pitch that I should use as much as I possibly could. Um, it was very complimentary to my fastball, which at that time – I was probably mid-90s, up to 97. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a little bit of a breaking ball that, um, you know, I'd lost. By pitching out a bullpen, you, you, you lose pitches because you really come in literally for as hard as you can, as long as you can, and try to produce outs. And so um, in my next bullpen, we worked on all of my pitches, my pitch selection, how I should use my pitches, my thought process, and why I use pitches at a certain time, which was more education than I'd ever gotten from anybody as a pitching coach. And um, that started progressing my career. Yeah, and then 1987, it all comes together. You win 20 games. I'll never forget the, the day that you won 20. I remember I got your autograph before the game. And I remember all of us annoying kids, we were all like, hey, don't say anything about number 20, you know, just wish him good luck, you know, don't say anything about number 20. And I remember 
you had left the game, you went into the clubhouse, and we were all chanting your name in the stands, and someone must have told you, hey, there's a bunch of fans that are out there, and I thought it was so cool that you came back out and <laughs> tipped your cap to everybody. Um, you know, that year, being back in Oakland to win 20 games after everything that had happened, what, what did that season mean? I don't really know. Um, I was, uh, at that time, really just seeking an opportunity, uh, a chance to show that I belonged in the big leagues and that I was a major league pitcher. I um, mean, uh, I went through some difficulty um, in Texas. And, you know, it's not the easiest thing being released in Philadelphia. Um, I knew my talent um, was there and I knew the ability was there. And I think that that's the one factor that never, it never wavered. My confidence in who I was uh, never wavered. And so to win 20 games that year in home, mm -hmm. I was in Oakland, the place I grew up, my backyard. It was kind of, uh, I never bragged about it, I never gloated about it, but um, it, was, it was really a slap in the face to, not the Dodgers, because I learned everything I needed to learn to be a good professional as a Dodger with the people that I grew up there with um, good friends that I still have now. Davey Lopes is my big brother. Reggie Smith is, is my second older brother. Um, Bert Hooten was helpful to me. I'll never forget the conversations with Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella, um, Don Sutton. Those, those conversations you never forget. And, and Sandy Koufax was literally a mentor to me as a Dodger, even until... Later in my career, if I needed a conversation or to share thoughts or to figure out, you know, uh, what is the best approach, I could pick up the phone and call him. And then, you know, having Dave Duncan was, that was the icing on the cake. So I didn't brag to the rest of the, 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 the league or the teams that had passed on me. Um, my goal after one in 20 that first year was to see if I could do it again. As a, someone who's from Oakland, I mean, I remember as a kid, just the A's were terrible, right? We had Ricky Henderson, and then he gets traded away, and, you know, attendance is down and all that. Um, to be a part of Oakland's revitalization, you know, in your hometown, and to see the stands packed, I think the A's were third in the league in attendance one year, had the highest payroll one year. Um, which goes to show how long ago it was. Um, you know, like, just being a being bringing such good positive vibes to your hometown, you know? You know, as a kid, um, I remember sitting on the front porch with a good friend of mine after church and Sunday school and talking about the city that we grew up in and wanting to be able to do good things and positive things in the city if we ever were able to make enough money. So really it was all a part of, you know, my plan or God's plan guess it'd have to be God's plan that turned into my plan um, to be able to, to be a part of all of that. I mean, because, you know, that started, you know, my community relations and, and all of the things that I was doing in the community. Um, and then, you know, the, the turn of the team and going from, you know, a not good team to a 500 team to a playoff team, you know, that's credit to Sandy Allison for having the vision to hire Tony LaRusa as the manager, but also having the vision to, to go out and 
pick up a Bob Welch or a Dennis Eckersley or a Dave Parker or a, you know, a Dave Henderson. Those yeah. were, were good signings. Um, and, and so, you know, I was just a, 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 a part of it um, that turned, to be, turned into a, a big part of it. Um, but, but the key is really, um, you know, the blessings that God put on me to be in that situation, to be able to accept the responsibility uh, that was given to me by Tony La Russa and the, and the baseball team. The way you pulled the cap down, the death stare, we, we all called it. Uh, how did that originate? Tell me the story of, of the cap and just that intense look that you would have pitching. That was, once again, a Sandy Koufax thing. Um, when I was with Sandy, and this started in Instructional League in 1976, you know, I was wild. He told me he was wild. You know, he explained his whole life story to me and how things changed for him. And I was struggling. I mean, I was in Instructional League where you usually get an opportunity to pitch in games. Um, all of my Instructional League work took place in bullpens. Um, with Sandy Koufax. And, you know, the last piece of the puzzle that really helped me to, because I was wild high, his words to me were, pull your cap down as low as you can, and that should change your sights. And it did. I couldn't see the upper part of the hitter's body. I could only see from about thigh high and down. And so that now became my target. And then the next year I won 18 games. I was 18 and four from not winning a single game to going 18 and four. And I won my uh, 18th game here actually in Albuquerque that year. For the 1989 year, um, I mean, geez, what a magical year that was until it wasn't. Um, do you remember where you were when Ricky Henderson got traded back to the A's and how you found out? In what year? 1989. <sighs> I don't remember where I was. Um, Probably in the clubhouse or at the ballpark, like like normal. I don't remember okay. where I was. <clears throat> I, I remember just thinking, okay, this is the final piece. 1988, so close, such a frustrating way to end it. Um, did you think the same way? Ricky's coming back home, the final piece. No, I thought we were we were very good. I mean, even in '87, we were we were right on the brink of making the playoffs that year. Um, we, we had a bad month and we just didn't play well. And then in 88, we got there and quite frankly, we should have won. Mm -hmm. um, why we didn't win, you know, people say it was a Kirk Gibson home run. Um, I mean, who really knows why we didn't win? Um, but we were very good in 88. Um, we won, I believe, 100 games plus in 88. And so adding Ricky to the team, um, it gave us another dimension to win. We strongly believed in, in what we were, which we were a very good pitching team from starting pitching to bullpen, which wins games. Uh, Tony was very, very adamant about being a good defensive team, not giving outs away, not giving runs away, and we didn't. And then if we had to hit, we can score more runs than the other side. So... We slash me, I was happy that Ricky was there because he was a childhood friend. And uh, we had played against each other as kids, played against each other in the minor leagues, played with each other as kids. I was glad that he was back home in a period of time when we could do great things. Back in the late 80s was a time that 
that's when complete games started to go away. But you were a guy who finished a lot of games. The number of innings that you put up. Tell me about the pride that you took in pitching deep and finishing games as often as you did. Well, once again, this is another, this is a Bob Gibson thing that I learned uh, by spending time talking with Bob Gibson. And Bob Gibson always said that the best way to, the best way to assure yourself of a win, is to finish a game. And um, I took that to heart. Um, I tried to pitch as deep as I could in every game that I could. Um, you know, there were games that Tony took me out of games. I could have finished him. Um, he knew it. Um, he looked at that as preserving me and keeping me fresh for the playoffs and in the World Series. And I appreciated that. And he also thought it would add years to my career. Um, and it may have. Um, but um, I was about winning baseball games. And the best way to win games, it's betting on yourself. I figured I was smarter than the hitter. Even in the seventh, eighth, and ninth, ninth innings, I was smarter than the guy that I was facing, uh, which meant that I'd get him out. That's the way I did my job. I didn't know any other way to do my job. It wasn't the way I learned to, to do my job. It wasn't the Dodger way of how we pitched. If you look at the Dodger staffs and the guys that pitched for them in the 70s and in the 80s, and even going into the 90s, Fernando was a prime example of that. Bob Welch came over to us. He was another prime example of of what it meant to compete. It was the highest level of com competing, um, in, in my opinion, and that's why completing games were imp important to me. That said, speaking of the Gibson home run, do you wish you would have stayed in? Did you want to stay in? You went eight innings that game. I, I didn't see there was any reason why I should have been taken out. Um, that was another year where I had a lot of complete games, and my complete games, if you look at the statistics, weren't six to nothing or games where I was winning by a lot, most of my complete games were close games. They were one-run or two-run games. And I felt that that game was a game, especially since it was the first game. You know, I had weathered the storm, I think, in the sixth inning um, is when they had their best opportunity to get me. And they didn't. After that, I had weathered the storm. And I, I felt that I was the best chance to, to win that game. To complete that game was the best chance to win that game. I felt that even though we had the greatest closer, in my opinion, one of the greatest closers in baseball, in Dennis Eckersley, um, I always felt that our best chance to win a baseball game was me finishing a game. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the 88 World Series anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a tough time at school. <laughs> was a tough time at school. Um, 1989, you start the All-Star game. What, what did that mean? Um, it was, once again, full circle. Um, I had uh, I'd done just about everything at that point, uh, 87, 20, 88, 20, on my way to another 21 season. Um, I was clearly the best starter in baseball at the All-Star break at that time when it came to wins. Mm -hmm. And I would probably even further that by saying I was the best starter in baseball at that time. You know, I don't have any idea why I wasn't selected in 88, I um, mean, in 87 to the All-Star game. I had no idea why I wasn't selected in 88 to the All-Star game. Um, so, you know, 89, I was finally selected. And then to be able to start it, um, I thought was just huge. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, on the other side was Doc Gooden um, that started for the for the National League. And, um, and uh, that, for me, was... You know, two black starters starting an all-star game. Um, it was just huge. And as it turns out, we were both part of 
the uh, fraternity, the Black Aces, mm-hmm. 20 game winners at the major league level. Um, you know, so it just topped it all. It was, it just topped it all for me. That whole 1989 year, you know, the A's are great, the Giants are great. You know, is there really going to be a Bay Bridge World Series? You know, again, as a kid who most of his childhood was spent and both teams were terrible, now all of a sudden both teams are great. Um, did you want to face the Giants in the World Series? Did it matter? Uh, it didn't matter at the time. As it got closer to the time, I was hoping that we'd face the Giants mm-hmm. because, I mean, what better than, than the two teams from the Bay facing each other? What could be better for the Bay Area? Yeah. Um, I was excited about that opportunity um, to play the Giants and was looking forward to it. And then game one, the shutout, you know, 5 nothing. That was – I felt like this was like, okay – it's Stu. You know Stu's going to pitch game one, and it's a shutout, and you got to go all nine. Um, you know, and it just felt like, man, this is just the, the, the pinnacle of the baseball world right now is Oakland, right? It felt like Tony learned his lesson from 88. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now it's 2-0, and then I'll never forget the, the, the time, 5.04 p.m. You know, it's shaking. I was scared to death <laughs> at my house. Uh, where were you at 5.04 p.m. on October 17th? Uh, I was sitting in a clubhouse uh, with our trainer, Barry Weinberg, and Harvey was the clubhouse guy. I believe Dave Henderson and I were having a few laughs. I had him late getting to the field. We were just sitting in a clubhouse, and then all of a sudden um, there was dust or smoke, whatever it was that was coming out of the air vents, and all of a sudden we were being rushed onto the field. And then that's when I realized, you know, that there was an earthquake. And I, quite frankly, I couldn't even understand how so many law enforcement officers had gotten onto the field that quickly. I mean, there were firemen, highway patrolmen, police officers, and they were all on the field by the time we came out of the, the clubhouse. And so we realized um, that something wasn't good. I remember reading about this over the years about how you went down to the cypress structure where the top deck had collapsed onto the bottom deck and the rescue workers are digging through asphalt and the rubble trying to find if anyone is still alive. You went down there to give moral support. Why? What, made, what compelled you to go down there and see for yourself what was happening? Well, I grew up in Oakland, as we all know. Um, that structure was the way I got uh, got home every night um, from the ballpark. I moved into a high-rise in an area called Emeryville, and that took me directly to where I lived. And so after the six-hour drive from across the bridge, uh, trying to get to the Oakland side, I just decided that I wasn't going to go to the Coliseum, that I was going to go home. And, and then and going home, I had to take the street. And that streetway took me plas, plas, past the, the glaring lights. There were just bright, bright lights, spotlights um, that were obviously guidance for the workers, um, the law enforcement, the firemen, the police officers, the paramedics to trying to get people out of that rubbish. And so I was just drawn to it, and I, I stopped. I was in full uniform at the time and um, wanted to know how I could be of, of assistance in, in any way, whether it was pulling bodies out, whether it was 
um, helping some of the locals that have been displaced from their homes, um, food, coffee. Those were my thoughts. How often did you go down there, and what did they tell you about what you could do? I went there every night, every day, every night, um, after practice, uh, until we went to Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, which took us about a week before we went to Phoenix. So every day for one week, uh, I was there to see if I could help um, rallying the neighborhood. Um, we were able to get local stores um, and local food establishments to to uh, bring food and clothing and um, whatever was needed in the area. I remember that was controversial that Tony took you guys to Phoenix. The Giants stayed back and you guys went to Phoenix. Um, what did you think then? What do you think now about leaving the Bay at that time? Well, once it was determined that we were going to play because we weren't even sure we were going to uh, finish the World Series. It was threatened to be called off. Once we knew that we were going to play, we felt as a team uh, the best thing for us to, to do would be to leave the area, go someplace where we could concentrate and focus on playing baseball and and having the the enough of uh, you know, we needed a facility fields mm-hmm. uh, to be able to, to, to get work done. And so it was the best situation. We all believed that that's where we should be at that time. I remember when the World Series did start two weeks later or whatever it was, that it was, it felt like this was our message to the rest of the country that we're okay, right? We're going to be all right. How did you feel restarting it, being back on the mound for game three? You know, baseball, sports, In general, um, you look at the people that cling to uh, sporting events, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, soccer. We've got the WNBA now. There's more sports than you can even imagine now versus even back then. But sports has always been the glue to communities, um, in my opinion. Um, And so once the commissioner deemed we could play, um, we felt that that would be the, the piece to bring two communities that were so far apart, even though we were close, mm-hmm. San Francisco and Oakland. You know, we're talking about a 15-minute drive across the bridge. But we're very different mm-hmm. at, when it comes to the internal communities. And so having that opportunity to play again we felt was a medicine that would put the communities together and would start the rebuilding. I remember that there wasn't a parade because of the earthquake. So um, I remember being disappointed as a kid not being able to go to a parade. You know, after the A's won, you're the MVP. You get the victory in games one and games three. Um, How did you still be able to celebrate that you're a world champion, you're the MVP of your hometown city? You know, uh, it's really... It's internal, quite frankly. I mean, truth is, the average person outside of Oakland, take yourself outside of Oakland. Let's say I was in Dubuque, Iowa, which I played there before, by the way. But let's say I played in Dubuque, Iowa, and I walked, I I mean, sorry, that I was in Dubuque, Iowa, visiting, and I walked down the streets of Dubuque. How many people would say, that's Dave Stewart, he's a world champion? Very few. Right. And so the championship is a, it's a team thing. 
it's a personal thing, obviously. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's 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 a pride. Um, and so I, I didn't need a parade to know that I had won a world cha- world series championship. I didn't need a parade to to announce to the world that I was the MVP in that world series championship. Um, it, it was all personal for me. And, um, and once again, it's something that you can never take away. I loved the no hitter in 1990. I remember watching the game with my dad. It's in Toronto at the sky dome. Um, I was looking back on some of the pictures and videos recently, knowing that you were coming to town and you were drenched in sweat. I mean, <laughs> were you as hot and sweaty as you looked at those photos and those videos as you're throwing that no hitter? I was. Um, uh, that's just me personally. Um, I, I, I perspire a lot. Um, and that game in particular, I think there was more to it. You know, the thought process from inning to inning, hitter to hitter. <clears throat> They're a great team. The Toronto team was a very, very good team. You know, a factor that people don't even think about is how difficult is it to throw a no-hitter on, on artificial surface? Mm-hmm. You know, when you put through the, the, whole, th- the, 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 the whole process of, of pitching a game, pitch by pitch, hitter by hitter, inning by inning, there is a lot of, there's a lot of emotion that, that goes into that. Um, there's a lot of mental, mental stress um, that goes into it, and, and I'd probably say that that game I probably did. I perspired more than, than I ever have in any other game. Yeah. The other great thing about the year 1990 is that was the year when it was clear that Dave Stewart owned Roger Clemens. <laughs> um, I heard this story, and I hope it's true. Let me know. Is that early in your career you were with the Rangers, and you faced Clemens, and Clemens beat you, and you said, I'm never losing to that guy again. That's a true story. Yeah. Well, you never did. You faced him nine times, and you went 9-0 and in those nine starts. That's a true story. Um, we know how great Roger Clemens was. What was it about Clemens that, that made you feel that way and so desire that I'm not going to let him beat me? Well, at that time, he was in, in Texas. He was, from the time that drafted to the time he got to the big leagues, he was the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the name that everybody – Everybody, his name came out of everybody's mouth. And, um, you know, once again, I would go reflect back to where I came from. You know, growing up in Oakland, I mean, it was always if you beat the best, then you are the best. And he beat me. And from that moment on, I said, if that's the best, then I'm never going to lose to him again. And it'll make me the best. And it's unfortunate it doesn't go that way. But... uh that was my mindset. I mean, I just know that as an A's fan and from my friends, you know, when you're an A's fan, you always feel like, you know, you're like the little brother, you know, and it doesn't matter how many games the A's have won or, you know, that they have the best players, but it just still feels like, you know, you're, you're, you're the second cousin or whatever. Um, and so it was so great as an A's fan that you would just constantly beat Clemens, just constantly. Every time it was, all right, here we go again. Stu's going to beat him again. Stu did. You know, and then it was clear it got to his head in 1990, right? Back Game one, game four, the playoffs, he gets ejected in, what, second inning or third inning? I mean, it was clear that it was, it was a dominant thing. Yeah. Um, but it was not a domination of, of Roger, quite frankly. 
I mean, it was a domination of Boston, mm-hmm. the Boston Red Sox, and being able to maneuver through that lineup and pick and choose the guys in situations that you weren't going to let hurt you. You know, there's Jim Rice. You've got Dwight Evans. You know, Wade Boggs was a part of that team. you got Gedman, Ellis Burke, Jody Reed. I mean, they had a very good baseball team. Um, and there's, they weren't an easy team to, to maneuver yourself through. It wasn't, especially in Boston, mm-hmm. a smaller ballpark. And so it's really just having a plan on how – to get those guys out for nine innings is what it really came down to. Um, and Roger, unfortunately, was on the other side of the loss. Um, you know, obviously, you, you, you raise your game uh, when you face, when you know he's on the other side because um, you're not allowed a lot of mistakes. And um, Roger's not going to be a guy that's going to give up five or six runs in a game. That's not who he is. And so you understand what your assignment is when you start that baseball game. But if you're pitching against Roger, that's the, that's the wrong attitude. Um, and that opens yourself to be vulnerable to Evans, Rice, Boggs, Gedman. It allows you to be vulnerable to them. And so you're really pitching against those guys and carving them up as best you can and making sure in situations that your mindset is where it needs to be to do what you have to do in those situations. <clears throat> My next question might, might end up being a similar answer, uh, I apologize. But in just terms of that mindset, again, you were at your best in the postseason. You won an MVP with the Blue Jays in the American League Championship Series. What was it about October that allowed you to, to rein in that focus to be at your best when it mattered the most? I don't, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I know more people are watching TV at that time uh, than anybody, and more people are at the games than at any time. But the truth is, um, I practice those situations from the time I was a kid playing in the backyard with my brother. My brother never, when we played against each other in the backyard, he never, ever put me in a situation that was an easy situation. It was always bases loaded and Willie Mays is the hitter. Or it's always bases loaded and Willie Stargell is the hitter or, or Roberto Clemente. Those were always the situations that I had to pitch out of. Uh, when I was a kid facing my brother, who was five years older, by the way. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, then you, you go from there and, and, and you, you play with, with La Russa, which was the next meaningful relationship I had with the manager. And Tony always put me in situations to practice the highest level of concentration and the highest level of competition for that matter. Um, and he would come to me and, and, you know, a game against Jack Morris or a game against Petrie or a game against Viola or Gidry or whoever and say, today is the day. Um, you're, you're facing their number one guy. This is a chance for you to practice where you're going to be at the end of the season. And um, so I was always in situations. I had enough practice so that when October came, I wasn't surprised by anything that would, would take place in that period of time because I've been practicing since I was a seven-year-old kid. 
That just reminded me of another game that I remember watching you pitch, and it wasn't against as big of a name, but Eric Hansen of the Mariners, and it was a day game. You went 11 innings. You went 11 <laughs> inning complete game on a hot day in Oakland. I remember I got a sunburn watching the game, and I remember it's like, man, Stu went 11 today, you know, to beat this young kid everyone's talking about from the Mariners. I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, we, you, we, you know those, those, those type of outings are – the storybook now. Yeah. Um, if Again, you, I'm remembering this 30 years yeah, ago. You know, like it happened yesterday. If you tell somebody, hey, guy pitched 11 innings and and he ends up winning that game one to nothing or he ends up winning that game two to one, whatever the score was, you know, people in today's game won't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, people won't believe that I, I pitched one game and I threw 154 pitches. Uh, they won't believe that. Um People won't believe that I pitched 283 innings in a season. Um, you, those things don't happen anymore. But the game, I don't think, is less prideful. But it was very, very prideful in the period of time that I came up. Um, and, you know, I named my mentors. You know, I, 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 you know, I spoke to you about Drysdale and Campanella and Newcomb and Koufax and Sweet Lou Johnson and Bob Gibson and Reggie Smith, Davy Lopes and you know the great teammate I had with the Texas Rangers and Jim Big Jim Bibby uh, was great teammate and a great mentor and then Dusty Baker. I mean, I played in a period of time when the game meant something different than it does today, and you know. The money was great at that time, for that time. But when people said that they would play for nothing, I, would, I, I raised my hand to that. Um, for me, it was about displaying my talent and getting out every day or every fifth day or every fourth day and, and just showing that I'm here. And <laughs> the other side's going to have a tough day. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap it up by talking about Albuquerque. Since you're back here for the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies tonight, uh, you were here for two full seasons. It's not easy to pitch here. It's very <laughs> difficult to pitch here. What did pitching in Albuquerque uh, teach you? Well, the first year I learned all the lessons I needed to learn, that's for sure. <laughs> you can't make – well, first of all, you can't make mistakes in Albuquerque and expect that you're going to have a good outing. You also – in this ballpark and expect that even when you make good pitches that there's going to be a price to pay. You also learn that you can't walk people in this ballpark. Um, that It's better to give up a solo home run than to give up a home run with runners on base. Um, and as a pitcher, those were the valuable lessons, quite frankly. Um, those are the lessons that you needed to learn. And so the first year, I think I had a five here. The second year, I came back with a with a high three, uh, which a high three is actually a two in any place else that you play. Um, but those are the lessons that I learned. Um, walks, especially, um, you just can't you can't walk people in this ballpark um, on a consistent basis and expect that you're going to have success here. Um, you can't pitch afraid here. That's for sure. Um, you have to be aggressive in this stadium and go after hitters. Um, but being smart and pitching smart, once again, carving up 
the lineup and maneuvering your way through a lineup. And the, you know, one of the things my dad told me is, and, and I never forget this, don't let ego get in the way of good judgment. <laughs> and I carried that through my pitching career for as long as I was, was a pitcher. I, you know, Bob Gibson um, was also a guy that, you know, if Bob Gibson would say, hey, you know, every now and then I, I walk a guy, <laughs> you know, at the right time, then I knew that it was okay to walk people. Yeah. And so I never let ego get in the way of good judgment. The ballpark in Albuquerque is much different now, but when you played, there was the lava rocks, there was the cars at the top that would park. What do you just remember about the atmosphere in the ballpark in Albuquerque? Oh, shoot. I remember when we hit home runs that everybody at the top in the lava rocks with the, in their cars would be honking their horns. <laughs> um, you know, back in those days, we also had uh, a period of time when you hit home runs, you passed the hat. Mm -hmm. So hitters got a chance to collect money after they hit home runs. Um, but... I thought, and I should say this, and I say this confidently, though it was a tough ballpark to pitch in, it was the most beautiful stadium in the Pacific Coast League in that period of time. In 1979-1980, the Albuquerque Duke Stadium was the best, most beautiful stadium to pitch in and play in. Um, I felt like a major leaguer in that ballpark. I really did. Um, the crowds, um, like I said, the honking of horns. And then we won a championship in 1980. Um, it was just a great experience for me playing in that, in that stadium, playing in that park, and playing with the guys that I play with. Something that I experience as the broadcaster for the AAA team is just how close guys are to the major leagues and how that can get to them mentally, you know, because they keep thinking I have to do this in order to get to the big leagues. Back in your day, it was a four-man rotation. It was even harder to break into the major leagues with a four-man rotation. Um, what would be the types of things that you would kind of remind yourself mentally in terms of being where you are and when at the back of your mind you still know that you're one injury away from getting called up? Well... You know, I got called up the first time uh, at the end of the 78 season. And so um, it was my first taste of what the big leagues is like. In spring training, you get to hang out with the big league players, but it's not like hanging out in a season with big leaguers and the big league cities and the big league atmosphere and dressing like a big leaguer and just being in that, you know, flying on the Dodger plane. So you can get thrown off by that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, quite frankly, I think that that's what happened to me in the 79 season. You know, I, I, I was a big leaguer in 79 pitching in AAA versus being a triple A AAA player trying to get myself into the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, that 79 season, as I said, it was a, it was a, a good lesson for me of what, I needed to be and how I needed to be better and how much more I needed to be better. And so uh, in, that set, in that 80 season, um, I, my focus was never any place else mm -hmm. but in Albuquerque and in El Paso and in Hawaii and wherever Salt Lake City, <laughs> uh, Tucson, Phoenix, 
Uh, crazy to hear all of these cities now. Uh, there's a major league city in Phoenix now. Um, but that's where my focus was, and I never deviated from that. Um, every day I was a PCL player. And um, I think that that put me in a position to, to perform the way I did in that, eight, in, that, uh, in that 1980 season. What about off the field in terms of just food, culture, kind of exploring? Do you have any good memories away from the ballpark about being in Albuquerque for two years? Um, I mean, it's a great city. Um, and I wish there was more that I could remember, mm -hmm. uh, but um, I know I ate a lot of Mexican food, <laughs> and, I, and I still do. Um, but uh, most of that, I grew up in Oakland, and so um, there were some Mexican restaurants in Oakland. I went to a Catholic school that um, was was mostly Hispanic at that time, but and we had um, we had places in in um, Oakland. Uh, my favorite place in Oakland was uh, Mirancho, um, which was a uh, in my opinion the best Mexican restaurant in in the Bay. But there is was definitely a difference in in the the flavor of Mexican food here in Albuquerque. Um, we didn't. During the course of the year, quite frankly, we didn't do a lot during the course of the year. At that time, heck, I was married and I had uh, two children. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of what I did in Albuquerque was stay home, mm -hmm. quite frankly. When we came off a road trip, we'd be home, home-cooked wheels. But uh, my wife and I, Vanessa, at that time, um, we did experience evenings out. And most of our evenings out were, like I said, we'd go to a nice Mexican restaurant. We'd have a couple of margaritas. And um, that's my experience in, in, of, of, of Albuquerque. It was a great place. I raised my two kids here early on. We didn't go home after the season. We stayed here in the off offseason. Um, this was home for us, uh, 79 and 80. And so... Um, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, flying into Albuquerque last night um, and the elevation of flying into the airport and driving out of the airport and having that elevation and looking over the city was, that is the thing I remember most about Albuquerque, New Mexico. Final question. When someone says, we want you to be in our Hall of Fame, what does it mean to you to go into the Albuquerque Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, I'm honored, hugely honored. Um, Two years, although the first year, <laughs> the only impression I made was that I took the mound and, and was able to, you know, you know, take a spot in that rotation. But the second year, um, you know, I, I, I learned lessons um, and I wanted to make an impression. Um, and I wanted to be a difference maker um, here in Albuquerque. Um, I wanted to win a championship. I think we all wanted to win a championship here. And so I think, you know, the numbers obviously play a part in it. But I think the, the, the second piece of it is, you know, we won a championship here. And it was a happy time for our team. And I think it was a happy time for the city. Um, we didn't have a big parade or anything like that. But, you know, the night we won, um, it was huge. It was huge. Um, and... Um, it was it was a table setter, um, and it was a mark for me on where and what I needed to be at the next level. This was a stepping stone, a very very 
valuable stepping stone for me and a life lesson um, here in Albuquerque on, on what I needed. And so being a Hall of Famer here um, means everything to me. Well, thank you, Stu. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited that you're here and I'm uh, so glad that you're here. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thanks. Thank you very much. Once again, that was Dave Stewart. This is Life Around the Seams.